0: A couple of years ago, I was um, I was looking for some kind of uh, plant uh, to cover up an ugly part of my fence. I think the picture's already on the screen, um, and I had gone to Lowe's and bought a trellis to get some kind of vine. I went down to Andy's nursery and talked to robbie about what some possibilities were and she told me about several possibilities but she she called somebody on the little radio there and had them bring up this particular plant and it came up and it was a sickly little scrawny plant with just a few leaves on it. it looked like it was half dead and i don't know plants it was clematis i think is the name something like that um and it was in this small little pod just a tiny little little vine and she said it was, it was normally a kind of expensive plant, but this thing, she wasn't sure if it was going to make it or not, so she just gave it to me for a couple bucks if I wanted it. It was the only one they had left, and so I said, sure, why not? There's not much risk there. So I went home, kind of tilled up the soil where I was wanting to plant this, amended it with some soil conditioner, and and put the trellis in the ground, and planted the, planted the vine, put mulch around it, took care of it, watered it regularly, and it just took off, and so uh, that thing is, is uh, the trellis is, I never even had time to attach it to the fence, and it's not needed. It's just that tr- the, the vine is keeping it against the fence, and it's completely swallowed it. Now my concern is how to keep my fence up, because it's <laughs> probably going to fall down. Um, but, but, th- but that was a very satisfying thing, particularly for somebody who doesn't really have much of a green thumb, as they say. I have a lot of failures in my track record of of planting things and watching them die, like my some grass that I planted last year. It's just a dirt patch this year. Um, but that was satisfying. Some of you, some of you are really good with plants. You know about them. You know how to make them grow, and and your yards and your gardens show that. Some of you, it's like you have Roundup just oozing out of your pores or something like that. So you you can get nothing to grow. Um, and my my record is kind of mixed. Some things I've planted have thrived, some things have died, and I feel like I could do the exact same thing with both of them, but some just don't make it. Some years my little container garden kind of thing is lush and beautiful and productive, and other years it's just an exercise and an illustration in futility. And um, But that's not just in, in gardening uh, that we have that kind of mixed record. It's, it's life, isn't it? I mean, sometimes it feels like we have Roundup coming out of our fingertips in all areas of life, or in other areas of life at least. You work hard at your job, and yet you keep getting passed up for promotions time and time again, or you even lose it. You work hard at being a godly spouse, but your marriage is mediocre at best, and even maybe filled with grief. You work hard at raising godly children and yet your kids um, they they're 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 disinterested in the Lord or even rebellious. You work hard at your finances and yet your portfolio is just paper thin You work hard at, at to be healthy to stay physically fit and yet some disease cripples you or or sickness just saps all of your strength and energy. You work hard at your area of ministry in the church maybe and and yet there's seems to be very little impact, or maybe it just seems to be going the wrong way. more people are leaving than coming, and it's very discouraging These scenarios can be very disheartening. Would't it be great if you could if you could guarantee success in some area of your life if you could if you if you could just have one area of your life that you could count on being fruitful, even if it was just gardening, which it's not ever going to happen so well, there is. There is one area. And, and, and listen, you may never be wealthy. You may never have a big, happy family like you see on the Hallmark Channel. You may never have this perfect marriage. You may never have a healthy body. You may never have a thrilling career. But the, in the most important area of your life, you can be fruitful and be fully satisfied. Whether you live in a wealthy U.S. suburb like we do, or whether you live in a slum in India, northern India. Whether you have a Ph.D. or whether you can barely read. Jesus says here in this passage, we just read, Whoever abides in Him will bear much fruit, guaranteed. You plant it and you plant yourself in Christ and you abide in Him. You will be fruitful. will be satisfied. will will know this. The only, this is the only pursuit in your life that is guaranteed. Your relationship with Jesus Christ, listen, it can thrive in any soil condition. This is why you travel around the world and you, you go to some of the most poorest parts and the most dangerous parts of the world. You meet believers and there's this vitality to the Christian life. And you can go into wealthy places in the United States where it's safe in these big churches and, 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 and yet there's this still, there's this growing vibrancy of, of life in Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And listen, there's no greater measure of quote success than to succeed in the thing that matters most. And this is it. And so this you can have. You can have a Christ-abiding, fruitful life. You can know joy, love, assurance, friendship in Jesus Christ. Whether you're a young, athletic standout or whether you're an elderly, crippled, shut-in. You can know this. Whether you're a brilliant, published theologian or an ordinary, unnoticed middle school student. You can know this. Nobody can stop you. Abundant life in Christ is available to all. Not by force of will. Not by uh, you know, obeying certain rules or something like that. But by drawing and staying close to Jesus. Resting in Him and in His love. That's what we'll see today. These are wonderful words for you and me. They were wonderful words for Christ to communicate to those 11 disciples in that upper room, as they, are, as they are shaken, their souls are troubled. That's the context here. Jesus is laying out very very clearly, he's, he's going to die, he's going to be leaving them. Where he goes, they cannot come. And this is continued to part of their comfort. It's in this you can have, you can abide in me, and you can know fruitfulness in your lives. And, and so, listen... I know we get into a section like this. Some of you are familiar with this passage. And let me just say out at the front Jesus isn't trying to start a theological debate in John 15. That's not, that's not the point of this passage. There has been no small amount of ink spilt trying to explain a couple of verses in, in this passage where there are some kind of difficult interpretive matters and, and disagreement on this. And, and so, good brothers and sisters agree on, on or disagree on these things. But that's not the point. We we can't get distracted from the, the main thrust of this section and what Jesus is saying. He's calling us as his disciples to abide in him and bear much fruit. And So three things this morning. Simple outline. We're going to try to cover a good bit of ground all the way down to verse 17 this morning. We're going to see the image of abiding in Jesus in verses 1 to 6 the benefits of abiding in Jesus in verses 7 to 11, and the overflow of abiding in Jesus in verses 12 to 17. And then we're going to talk about how this shows up in life. Pray for me. We'll get there, I hope. Uh, First, the image of abiding. Verses 1 to 6. Jesus used this wonderful metaphor to show how the, the most important relationship is sustained and strengthened, and it's this. It's a vine and a vineyard. And so this is the seventh of the last seven uh, great I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John. Verse one, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And So this is the image, the, the image of vine. It's nothing new in scripture. We see it elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly in parables that deal with this vine imagery. It shows up, but, but certainly it also connects to the Old Testament in Israel, that that. The vine was often used as a symbol for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And 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 this was a symbol that was well known to all the Jews, just like we have the eagle as a symbol in our own nation. and You see that and you know what that represents. So was the vine for Israel. There are, there are several passages in the Old Testament that really that really unfold this imagery of Israel being this vine one just you will have to look you have to look at these on your own but I, Isaiah chapter 5 Psalm 80 Ezekiel 15 but just in the Isaiah five, 5 passage verses 1 to 7 you you see again Israel's this vine and God's design for them is that they would they would produce this nourishing refreshing beautiful fruit righteousness and and justice and true worship but instead there were these wild grapes of of injustice and oppression and idolatry. And so the Lord just kind of turns them over to their sin and the vineyard is overrun. And so with that deeply entrenched image in the minds of the Jews, Jesus says to His disciples in that upper room, I am the true vine. I'm the real deal. I'm the genuine vine. I am what all other vines are supposed to be, what a vine should be. And 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 God the Father is the vine dresser. He's the master gardener. He's the he's in charge. It's his vine, his vineyard, and he's focused as the vine dresser, as any vine dresser would be, on bringing as much fruit, much good fruit, as is possible from the vine and from the vineyard. That's his that's his goal. So as we'll see, he takes away, he prunes all all to help with fruit production. So no problem. Yeah, that's easy enough, right? So far. Well, then we get to verse two, and and before we even get there, I remember that this is a metaphor. We we have to be careful not to overanalyze each part of uh of a passage like this, a parable or a metaphor. Jesus has one big idea that he's trying to communicate, and so if we get carried away assigning really specific meaning to every little part, every little word, phrase, we'll get Further from the meaning, not closer to the meaning. So we have to we have to be careful with that. But with that said, verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus talks about two types of branches here. There's those that bear no fruit. There are those who do bear fruit. And so the identity of those fruitless branches at the first part of verse 2... That's the source of so much debate among, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and again, the confusion isn't in scripture. The lack of clarity isn't in Christ. It's in, it's us. It's our limitations. And so we, we, we struggle to know exactly what he means, but it's not, un- it's not because the Bible is, is unclear. Let's go ahead and read through verse six and we'll come back to this question. Verse three. Already you are clean. The clean there is, it's the same word, uh, pruned, that he used in verse, in verse 2, in the second part of verse 2. It also goes back to chapter 13, verses, uh, verse 10, when he's talking about it, to the disciples, one of you is not clean, but you, you're clean. You're clean already. This is the same word. So you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Then verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So again, the question is, who, who are these unfruitful branches? Who are the branches that are burned? Are they the same group even? Now there are a few interpretive options here that, that you'll find. And one of, the first one is not even an acceptable choice. And I hope that nobody here would even lean this direction. The others are, are acceptable. They're reasonable. But of course, there's only one right interpretation. Now We may not hold the right, have the right one, but there is only one right one. It's not like we, we, uh, we, uh, we, we disagree, but we're both right or something like it. no. We may both be wrong, or one of us may be right, one of us is not. But there's one right meaning, many applications. That's the principle of studying Scripture. But let's just talk about these. The first view, which is not, again, not acceptable, it says that these are former believers. But you, you do come across this, and so that's why I mention this. This is not, this is not right. But they would say these, these unfruitful branches represent true believers who, who because they become unfruitful, they lose their salvation and consequently and ultimately are cast into hell. And so these unfruitful branches, again, true believers, they were, they, were, they were genuinely once born again, but they subsequently lost their salvation. So they were taken away. They were in Christ, but were taken away and burned. Now that's in clear contradiction to the crystal clear statement on security that Jesus just made a few chapters ago in John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. He says, I, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So there, there's, a, again, another principle of interpretation is when you, when you come to parables, metaphors like this, you've got to remember they're for the purpose of illustrating a truth. You, you don't want to come to a passage like this and, and try to develop a doctrine out of a parable. You, 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 you've got to see what truth is being illustrated by this. And so if the, if the truth you're trying to deduce from that parable isn't taught clearly elsewhere in Scripture, then that's, you're in trouble. And that's what we find here. Second, uh, interpretation, the first one that's really reason, I mean, the first one that's acceptable is that these are believers. The unfruitful branches represent true believers who are disciplined because of their failure to produce spiritual fruit. And so there's strong support for this view in the text. Je- Jesus says that the unfruitful branches are in me. They're in Christ verse 2 which which would make you again you see they 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 the must true believers if they're in Christ and they may be fruitless but they're in Jesus and he says in verse 3 he says they're already clean he's talking to people who are already clean already washed already forgiven their sins are are cleansed pointing back again to chapter 13 uh, verse 10 11 earlier in the upper room discourse Already justified, so Jesus is talking to saved men here. So why would He be bringing the unsaved back in the discussion at this point? So how how are they taken away then? How does how do we how do you explain that? Well, it it may maybe physical death, like sin unto death. 1 Corinthians chapter thirteen ten or chapter eleven and verse thirty, talking about the Lord's table, and some of you are sick and some of you died. So it may be that kind of idea, or the, the word takes away in the Greek is the word arrow, and you can almost hear this. It, it really has the idea of lifting up. That's the literal meaning of that word. It's often translated, and, and, and it means to take away, but at times it means to be lifted up. And so this may have actually have a positive meaning. Instead of removing and taking away that negative connotation, it may be a positive thing where the vine dresser carefully lifts up the fruitless branches off the ground and gets them off of the ground to encourage growth and fruitfulness. The, the, the vine dresser tenderly picking those up and getting them and supporting them so that they can bear fruit. Charles Ryrie uh, explains this view uh, admirably. So what about verse 6? How, how, how is that explained? They're thrown away like a... Branch, the, the, those that don't abide, they're thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And again, this is where we, have to, we do have to be careful. That we don't overanalyze the individual parts. But the, the, this view would say that this refers not to damnation or hell. This is, this is the loss of a believer's testimony. Or the judgment of the believer's works. They're burned. And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And so, this interpretation, it fits the context of the upper room. All, all, the, the eleven disciples are left, true disciples are left, and, and it aligns with other, other New Testament teaching. God takes the fruit in the life of a believer very seriously. And so He disciplines us to grow us. He works to grow that fruit in us. That's very clear in the passage. Our works will matter at the judgment seat of Christ. And, and, and Christians will lose rewards, not salvation, but, but by their lack of fruit. So that's those are very clear, clearly taught. But but this view is also not without its challenges, and you'll see some of those as we see the third possible interpretation, or really the second one that's valid. And it's that these are unbelievers. The unfruitful branches represent those who are close to Christ but are not true believers, like Judas would be the who he has in mind here. So Judas was with Jesus. He seemed like a true branch, he was part of the the twelve, and he traveled with Jesus, was close to him, and none of the other disciples realized he wasn't truly hadn't truly believed in Jesus, and yet he didn't have God's life in him. And so he was cut off and taken away, and, and Jesus sends him out in the upper room. We saw that in, again in chapter 13. Now there's support for this view. Jesus says that the branches have no fruit that are taken away. Not little fruit, but no fruit. If we're truly born again, if we're in union with Christ, surely there will be some life, even if little, if, and some fruit, even if, 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 if just a small amount. Also in verse 3, the, the, the fact that Jesus says, already you are clean. And so he's, he could be differentiating between the eleven and Judas. Again, like he did in chapter 13. So Jesus knows that the eleven that remain, they're true believers. They're, they're clean. They're, they're being pruned to bear more fruit. But he's, So he's not telling the eleven how to be saved. He's telling saved people to abide in Christ. But he's alluding to the fact that Judas was not clean. That's why he was taken away. And, and remember, Judas has not been gone long. I know for us, because the preacher is kind of dragging his feet through John... Uh, it's, been, it's been at least a month, maybe six weeks since we were in that part of, of the Upper Room Discourse. But for the disciples, this has just been a matter of minutes, likely, since Judas left. And their, their whole, this, this news that one of them would betray Jesus really rocked them. And they, 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 their heads are still spinning about this. And so it may be that this is Jesus' care for them to, to, to help them understand what's going on. And and so then you get to verse 6, and certainly this would be a support uh, for this third view, that it would be hard to choose words that would better picture the fate of unbelievers than these. I mean, you have to admit, this would be a good description. And so this view, though, it's not without difficulties. I mean, I, I think the biggest challenge is, is in verse 2, where he says, the branches are in me. and And... And so, mind mind you that the, that technical use that Paul will use of being in Christ that's that's that that hasn't really come into the full sense. That doesn't come till after Pentecost. Nobody was in Christ in that sense at this time because the Spirit hadn't come and dwelt believers. All right. So what what do you do? I, we have not exhausted all the possibilities here. So please. You're not going to be satisfied if you're strongly entrenched on one view or another. I realize there are lots of other arguments for and against these different views, and I'm going to have to leave that with you. What do we do? Which is right? And there are other variations to these main interpretations. There are blended forms of this. I would just say I encourage you to study these verses for yourselves. I encourage you to come to your own conclusions as I have, and then to hold to those conclusions very humbly. Realizing you, you may need to grow and you you may be off and knowing you may be wrong. I've spent I don't know how many hours over the last four to six weeks looking at these verses. I'm guessing eighty hours or something like that, just looking at, at, at these verses in John fifteen. First just reading through the upper room discourse over and over and over again, probably a dozen times uh, and, and, and weeks ago, then looking at the language resources and studying the historical context and studying about viticulture, vine. I didn't even know viticulture was a word, but I'm hundreds of pages on viticulture, and and then finally turning to commentaries and journal articles to to get a sense because there's a lot written on these verses, just this these two verses really, and I would say both interpretations have their strengths, have their weaknesses. At this time, I, I'm inclined to take the third view. Uh, of seeing these unfruitful branches is, it, it it fits well with the metaphor and with the context of particularly of judas and and but it 's not easy i mean these are this is not it's not it 's not a, a one sided uh, um, decision on on this and so i, I, I again i 'm aware of the challenges with that interpretation and i don 't pretend like i 'm going to change anybody 's mind by by laying this out this morning, regardless of how you interpret these verses. let me just say this a few statements, and then we're going to move on to the real thrust of this passage. Both acceptable interpretations do carry biblical truth. I hope that you will concede that. You, you should see truth in both interpretations. Eternal security, fruit bearing, carnality, discipline of believers, the possibility of deception, false profession. The question isn't which of these interpretations represents biblical truth. The question is which biblical truth or truths are illustrated in this in this passage. And so it's not that one is right. One is wrong. One of the interpretations is right. But but they're, it's all, it's, they're, they're truths that are being represented by both. Second. We can hold different. Uh, this is just a general statement. We can hold different interpretations on passages like this. With mutual respect. Sincere gratitude and love for one another. And then third. Jesus's emphasis here is not. On how far we can get, how much we can get away with, and still be saved. And I know there are those that kind of want to do this with this kind of passage. He's teaching us to stay close to Jesus. This isn't about fruit inspection and who's saved, who's not saved. This is about abiding in Jesus Christ. He's talking to his disciples who are clean. He's telling them abide in Jesus Christ. I think he's simply throwing back and explaining the Judas, the Judas factor. So now that we've dealt with the elephant in the room, we really poked him and got him mad. And so that he's moving around. Let's get to the real point of the passage. The focus that Christ wants is not on the unfruitful branches. That's not the the imperative here. Look at the unfruitful branches. No, the the imperative, the overriding theme is abide. And you saw that as we read uh, through verse 11 over and over and over again. Abide in Jesus. Abide in me. The focus is on the vine. And so the, he's calling us as believers who are clean to abide in him. And that's, the, that's what drives this section 11 times in these verses. Abide, abide, abide. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus the vine? Abide simply means to remain, to, to, live, to live in, to live with, to stay close to. With that vine imagery, it means that we're to stay vitally connected to the vine. And so... Abiding means several things. It implies intimacy. Staying close to Jesus. Keeping close fellowship with Christ so that His sap, as it were, runs through our veins. We're we're close. We're connected to Him. It also implies consistency. Staying staying put in the vine. Imagine if I bought a tree down in Andy's nursery and, and decided I was going to plant it in my front yard. And so I planted it there and dug the hole and... Put the, put the dirt back, water that tree. And then, and then about, I don't know, a month, six weeks later, I decide, you know what, I think that tree would be better in the backyard. So I dig it up, haul it to the backyard, and I let it go there for a while. And I'm looking at it, sitting out there watching the backyard. You know what, a couple months later, I think the tree would be better in the front yard after all. So I dig it up again and put it back and dig another hole in the front yard. And I just keep doing that. You think that tree is going to, going to thrive and flourish? Not a chance. It's going to struggle just to survive it's got to stay put it's got to it's got to abide it's got to remain close to draw strength from and draw the nutrients from that soil and let them run deep into that into that ground and and so this is, abiding implies that kind of consistency of life third abiding is not the same as believing and i and, and i know some suggest this that that these are synonyms and even those that take the view that i take of the unfruitful branches in particular we would not say to a non-Christian, abide in Jesus to have eternal life. We say, believe in Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. We say to one another, as those who have trusted in Christ, abide in Christ and be fruitful. That's what Jesus is saying here. Abide is not how our not how relationship with Jesus is initiated. It's not how it's preserved. Abide is how a relationship is, is grown and deepened and, and maintained. That's what that's what he's talking about. So abide and believe they're they're not synonymous. They are, of course, related because we 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 abide by faith. Faith doesn't just come into play at conversion and all right, we're done with faith. Now we're going to go on to, to works and do and what we do. No. We, it's always, faith is always in it. Something we grow in for the rest of our lives as we draw near to Christ and fellowship with Him. But, but they're not the same. They're not synonymous. And so verse 4. Look at there again with me we've read these verses a few times now, but we get abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me. You can do nothing. I realize we haven't even defined what fruit is yet. We're going to in just a moment, but I want you to see one more thing about abiding here. It's a abiding. It's a declaration of dependence. It's 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 a this growing sense of our weakness and our inadequacy and Christ's power and strength and sufficiency. That's what abiding involves. It's it's that we can't bear lasting spiritual fruit without Christ, and we know it. We can staple fruit onto our lives like you put fake ornaments on a Christmas tree, and. And that, that's that's not it. The, but but real fruit comes from our connectedness with Christ. That's where it's going to come from. There are things, yes, there are things we can do apart from Jesus, the true vine. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't. You can earn a living. You can raise a family, apart from the vine. People do that all the time. You can, you, can, you can be in this church. You can counsel people without abiding in Jesus Christ. I could pastor this church without abiding in Christ. I could preach sermons. I could do the work. But nothing lasting. Nothing worthwhile. No real fruit can come apart from our connectedness and, and deepen fellowship and abiding in Jesus Christ and reliance upon Him. That's what he's saying. So the starting point of a fruitful life is realizing that on our own, we are unable to be fruitful. But then, but then, but it also means we're consciously, deliberately depending upon Christ. We cling to Him. We, we depend upon Him. Abiding, it doesn't just happen. It's not just automatic. We, we cultivate this in our Christian life. Our, our sense of, of neediness for Christ and dependence upon Him shows up in a thousand ways. We'll talk about some of those. All right, so the question then is, what is the fruit that comes from abiding in Jesus? What fruit? If we abide in him, we'll bear much fruit. What is this fruit? Simply, it's the life of the vine and the branch. It's the life of the vine and the branch. It's the fruit of Jesus' life in us and through us. Or we could say simply, it's Christlikeness. I know we could look at other passages that describe what this fruit looks like. And so, you know, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And so that, that godly character that, that comes. And other places in the scripture talk about the fruit of, of acts of mercy and sharing the gospel, converts, that kind of thing. We could talk about worship in Hebrews thirteen five, Praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to God. And yes, that's all part of it. And, and I don't deny that at all. But I, again, we don't want to press the metaphor so far that we miss the real point. That the Christian who abides in Jesus has the life and likeness of Christ in him, and this happens more and more as we cling to Christ, abide in Him. It's this fruit that the Father, the Vine Dresser, desperately wants to produce in our lives. I mean, the picture here of I am the true Vine, my Father is the Vine Dresser, and he, He's working to produce fruit. And so it's like this Father walking through the through the vineyard and, and lovingly encouraging the vine to, to produce fruit, greater fruit production, caring for the vine. And one of the main ways God increases fruit, we see in verse two is by pruning. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So it's pruning. This is this is how this is how fruit is produced. A couple of things. Pruning is essential, first of all. The health, the abundance of fruit is directly proportionate to the quality of the pruning. So vine is never going to produce anywhere it's near its potential without having been regularly pruned. And so to the untrained eye, pruning looks counterproductive and kind of wasteful. I remember we moved in to uh, the blue house over here. And there's, there were three apple trees in the back. I never had a fruit tree. Didn't know what to do with a fruit tree. My thought is, let's just see how big this thing could come, how many branches we can get on this thing, and it'll be wonderful. More branches, more apples, right? Well, those first couple of years, man, we had these little tiny little apples, and they were all diseased and, you know, worms and stuff in them. And, and somebody told me, you got to you got to prune that thing you've got to thin it out so it has air and all these things and so you can get better fruit and again to me it seems counterproductive why would i cut away possible fruit bearing uh foliage here but uh, but again this is to the the, the father his to the experienced eye. this is the way that you you grow uh, good abundant delicious fruit and it's the same in the christian life so pruning is essential second pruning is painful it can be very painful. It can hurt. And pain is something we generally recoil at. Pruning nearly always involves adversity, suffering. If you're if you're suffering, you may experience, you may be if you're suffering right now, you may be experiencing the gracious pruning of God in your life. And he's he's preparing you to bear more fruit for him. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. I'm trying to make light of your your sorrows, but it, that just can think of that. There's an illustration of this, the, the goodness and in, in the pain of of suffering in the in the Voyage of the Don Treader, the C. S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series. There's one of the main characters in the in, in the Voyage of the Don Treader is Eustace Scrub. Useless, he's affectionately called. He's a snotty kid, thinks only of himself. Well he ends up in this in this dragon's cave, and not only that, he, he turns out, he finds out that he himself has turned into a dragon. So he's got these scales all over his body, and he, he's trying to desperately to remove and scratch these scales from his body, but he can't do it. He wants to get rid of this, this dragon uh, from, him, from his body. But finally, Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion, he comes and Eustace describes what happens next. And he says like this, This is what the lion said, but I don't even know if he spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And, he, and when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And isn't that how it is sometimes in our lives? tories with pruning we 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 would rather do it ourselves but we can't we we if we could we wouldn't we and even if we could do it ourselves we wouldn't really get to the stuff that really needs to be removed we wouldn't go deep enough it would just be surfacey stuff and while it hurts for the moment the outcome is is wonderful and it's worth it the fruit that comes so pruning is is essential. Pruning is, is painful. It's also for our good. It's not punishment. It's not retribution. It's loving care. Ken Hughes said this, God's hand is never closer than when He prunes the vine. It's this tender care of a father pruning us and changing us. And during the times of severe cutting, it may not seem like that. It may seem that God is distant, but He is near. He's caring for you. He's pruning you for fruit. Alright, well we have to accelerate now uh, through some of the rest of this passage. We looked at the image of abiding in verses 1-6 to six, and let's quickly consider some of the benefits of abiding and we're just going to have to walk through these in rapid form. Verses 7-11. to 11. First benefit is empowered prayer. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So as we pray, we abide. As we abide, we pray more. And what Jesus is saying is the, uh, the effectualness of our praying is conditioned upon our abiding in Christ. And so, do you have a sluggish prayer life? Do you, you so distracted by your smartphone and you just have trouble really praying for extended periods of time and, and, and doing it daily and you get distracted by other things? Let me say, draw near to Christ. Focus not just on the mechanics of a prayer life, but focus on a relationship with Christ and fostering that close fellowship with Jesus Christ, drawing near to Him, abiding in Him. There will be effectualness in your praying like you've never known. Another benefit of abiding is, is a glorified Father. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Since apart from Christ, we can do nothing, and the work of the Son is inseparable from the, that of the Father, as we've seen throughout John, it follows that the Father will be glorified as we abide in Christ. Bear fruit. The vine dresser is glorified by a beautiful, fruitful vine. That makes sense. Third, there's proven discipleship. This is another benefit. So you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It's just prove to be. This doesn't mean. You know we gotta we gotta provide enough evidence that we're truly saved that we're really disciples of Jesus Christ. So we gotta gotta get enough fruit and so we can wear this as a badge. Yes, I'm 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 truly one of His. That's not His point. The word prove here literally means to become. It's if you, in oh, Greek, it's a genomai. It's just to be or to become. So He's saying you're in His present tense. The idea is we're becoming Christ's disciples more and more. It's talking about growing you want to grow as my disciple, bearing fruit, this is, this is what happens as you abide in Jesus. You're more and more and more and more and more disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And then fourth, unlimited love, full love. Verse 9. This Again, I hate that we have to just keep going. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Stop, think about that for a moment. Let that just explode in your heart a little bit. As the Father has loved me, how great is the love of the Father for His Son. Eternal, boundless love within the triune Godhead. To that extent, to whatever degree Christ is loved by God the Father, He has loved you. Oh, God, help my unbelief. It is so hard to believe that, brothers and sisters. I think i got to earn it. I think i got to get Christ on my good side. I messed up. And i gotta, I got to do enough and perform well enough to get him back so that I don't have his frown directed at my way. Oh, Lord, help me. To whatever extent God loves Christ, he, Christ loves you. Just let that, just take a bath in that truth. And then he says what? Abide in my love. Just make your home in it. Don't, don't get past that. Well, okay, I'm, I've got the fact Jesus loves me now. Now give me the big stuff. Give me the good stuff. No, just stay there. If you don't go anywhere past that in your sanctification, but you really make your home in Christ and His love, you have arrived, brothers and sisters. That's, that's enough. Stay put in Christ's love. Verse 10, and if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And so, as we, as we abide in Jesus and bear fruit, Christ's love fills our lives. And then there's a, there's a fifth benefit of abiding, and it's full joy. It flows right out of that. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. Okay, there we could spend a whole sermon right there. And that your joy may be full. I just have to summarize. This, this is joy to the max. Joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. And this joy is from Jesus. It's not like we're just going, where can I get joy? Okay, after all of my search, I guess it's in Jesus. That's the best place for it. No, we look for Jesus. Jesus. And as we draw close to Christ, we stay connected to Him in fellowship and we bear fruit that this Christ-likeness in Him, His life in us, we will know incredible joy and delight. And the opposite, brothers and sisters, though, is also true. Failure to abide in Christ will squelch joy in your life. No one is more miserable than a disobedient, do-it-yourself kind of Christian. He can't immerse himself in the world because he has a spirit who lives in him so he can't enjoy it like he used to. So that's not really joy producing. And yet, he's not fully immersed in abiding fellowship with Christ so there's, that joy is gone. That's a miserable way to live. You may have walked in this morning with this kind of misery. and The Holy Spirit has led you here today. I believe that and you may the others around you your own spouse your children your parents they may not sense this in you because you have the facade everything's okay but you're you're miserable and 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 the lord knows it he sees it he wants you to return to him he wants you to abide fully in him and draw near to him in intimacy and consistency and and, and faith and in and, and this dependence upon Him, and He will fill your heart with inexpressible and immeasurable joy. You can know it, brothers and sisters. This is for everyone. Nobody, nobody doesn't have a green thumb here. You can have this. Finally, our ab- abiding in Jesus it spills out into other relationships, and it's not just. Me and Jesus, and that's all it is. It, it's just it's me and Jesus and abide, me abiding in Him one-on-one. No, the, the, the picture you get throughout Scripture is this is life and community that we abide in Christ together. And so our relationships to one another, other branches in, in this vine, they're affected. We're going to see next week that our relationship to the world is also affected by this union we have with Christ. But, but this is the third point here, the overflow of abiding. And in verses 13 to 17 we see this. There's this newness in how we relate to one another in the vine. A new standard. It's no longer cutthroat competition like it was with the disciples. Now it's friendship. It's love. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than than someone lay down his life for his friends. It's not just love one another as yourself, it's love one another as I have loved you. That's the standard. Of course, we can't love one another as Christ loved us in every single way, in every sense. You understand that? Not in terms of his glorious, redemptive, atoning, uh, those atoning aspects of Christ's love. That's not possible. But what we what what can emulate is what he's focusing on here. and It's that self-sacrifice. And so our abiding in Christ, it overflows into our relationships with one another. And one of the ways it shows up is in self-sacrificing relationships or friendships. Jesus demonstrated sacrificial love for the church. calls us to that same kind of sacrificial love for one another. It's not, there's not enough self-sacrifice in God's family. I, I, I don't think so. And I'm most guilty. The the, the if there's not enough us allowing ourselves to be inconvenienced by one another. The sacrifices that are often most difficult for us aren't the ones that require us to lay down our physical lives, to take a bullet for one another. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's those that require us to lay down our personal rights and our preferences. We like things, our personal schedules, our routines. Those are the hard ones in the day-to-day realm to prefer one another in love. But this is what... This is what it means to love like Christ. Also, it means life-sharing, relationship, life-sharing relationships or friendships. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I tell my friends this all the time. Yeah. No. Um, that doesn't work, does it? <laughs> it works with Jesus. Um, this speaks of obedience, clearly. Clearly. But it also speaks of sharing of heart. And we see it in this context. Jesus' friends obey Him because they share the same outlook, perspective, goals. They're close friends. They agree in heart. And let's see this in the next verse. That The sharing of heart enables and promotes the sharing of information. So verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So just Jesus was saying, Men, I don't just consider you slaves anymore. I, I call you friends. And so I so I share personal information with you. I the deepest thoughts of my heart, whatever the Father shows me, I say to you. And that's that's friendship. And again, but this is in the context of Jesus exhorting his disciples. This is the overflow of abiding in me as I abide in the Father, it's going to look like you're going to share your life with one another. Friendship means you let people in, you share your life, you share your souls with one another. Does that characterize your relationships within the church, within the body of Christ, within this fellowship? Or do you tend to kind of keep people at arm's length? Physically maybe, but more emotionally, spiritually, just kind of keep people at a safe distance, keep those walls kind of firmly built around your life. That's not, that's not what Jesus calls you. It's not the, the overflow of a life that's really abiding in Jesus. There's nothing to hide of a life that's, that's hidden in Christ. Finally, verses 16 to 17, they form this kind of conclusion, transition, taking, what we've, taking in all that we've seen in verses 1 to 15, and we'll just be able to read them. But Jesus says, You did not cho- choose me, but I chose you. Now, Jesus is showing his Calvinist card here. No, that's not the point. Um, he cho- you did not choose, choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Uh, what does this mean for us? How does this show up in life? There are... There are endless possibilities of applying this passage and showing the implications in life today. There are are just countless. It's so fundamental. That's what we're getting at here. The son's life being reproduced in our lives so that as we remain vitally connected to him and in fellowship and close fellowship with him, uh, we we bear fruit. That's what what the life of a Christian is all about. So it, it affects everything. I want to just help you, just give you an example of how this shows up in one area of that li- of your life, and it, it's in in those areas where we desire change in our lives. Is real change possible in this life for the Christian? And if so, how can it happen? How does a fearful, anxious, timid, stressed out person become courageous and bold? How does a a racist become kind and and in a biblically way, biblically, biblical way, tolerant? How does a lazy person become self-disciplined? How does a liar become a truth teller? How does an addict become set free from that bondage? So So that's, that's the question. What does this have to do, the vine, the branches, abiding in Christ, have to do when it comes to those areas of my life where I just want to change? I know I know that Christians think about this kind of thing. You can go down to the Christian bookstore before it closes, if it hasn't closed already in the pavilion there, and you, you just scan the books in there and the titles and look at the sections, it seems like half of the store is self help. And I just that's just symptomatic that Christians are asking those questions from all kinds of life. How do I change? What is what does true spiritual change involve? John fifteen, it's the life of Christ coming in you and forming in you. That's it. How does how does this spiritual change happen? By abiding in Jesus and remaining in his love for us. By making our home in the gospel we could say. As we talk about the gospel, the gospel isn't just for unbelievers. We're going to talk about the outreach we'll have at Easter and inviting our neighborhood and, and others and you with your neighbors. Inviting people to come on Easter Sunday to hear the gospel. And, and that's right. But the gospel is for Christians too. It's for you and I, brothers and sisters. It's, it's not just how we begin in Christ. It's how we grow in Christ. As John 15 makes this clear, the gospel, the message that Jesus died for our sins and offers salvation as a free gift to all who would believe, it's, it's not just how we were initiated into Christianity, it's how we grow. It's not just the diving board, we jump off into the pool of Christianity. No, it, it is the pool that we're diving into. So at its core, the gospel, it's not just a list of instructions about, about what we must do for God. No, it's an announcement of what God has done for us. It's a message. It's heralded. It's not a new set of behaviors to be adopted. It is an announcement to be believed. Not good advice, good news. It's a message. So now a change of behavior will result from believing the gospel. But don't get confused. The change of behavior is not the gospel itself. So you can't confuse the effects of the gospel with the gospel itself, or it will become a different gospel where we meet God halfway somewhere. And that's not that's not true. By abiding in the gospel, the message of what God has done for us in Christ, we will grow and change. So there are different different ways to think about growth. There's there's a more mechanical kind of growth and there's gospel growth. A more, more mechanical kind of growth, it's growth by external compulsion. We just what this would look like in, in a kind of a normal setting of, of somebody that's marriage counseling. Maybe a husband is struggling and be a godly husband and sees his marriage crumbling and so he's wanting help. And so he goes for counseling. But what's, what's, what's motivating him? It could be if, it's by, if he's looking for mechanical growth, he may be motivated by fear. He's just afraid that his wife is going to leave him. Or he may be motivated by pride. He doesn't want the stigma of a divorce. Or he may be motivated by idolatry. He wants, he thinks that ultimate happiness will be found if I can just have a stable home. That's everything. Everything else, just push that aside. If I can just get this, everything will be good. In all these things, he's not, he's not loving God. He's not loving his wife. It's really, it's really, he's loving himself. It may look like love for God, but it's not. As soon as those external pressures are removed, he goes back to the way he was like stapling rose uh, rose buds or blooms on a rose bush and just thinking that that's enough. It's not. So that's one way to think about growth. The other way is to think of gospel growth, which is the right way. The gospel changes us in an entirely different way. It's, it's organic growth. Now, I know we hear that word organic, and you, you, we get that's so common in food and all of these other things today, which, or even in leadership, and just organic, man. And it's like we're hippies or something like that, and just, just kind of free-flowing and no-form. That's not what I mean. Organic just means there's, it's, it's life. It's changing us at the center of life, of who we are. It, it, it's changing our desires from the inside. How do we do that? By abiding in Christ and His love. The gospel works in the realm of our desires, in our in our hearts, because sin at its core, you know this, brothers and sisters, if you've been around here, sin is a worship problem. It's radical self-centeredness. And so we worshiped our way into sin. How are we going to get out of sin? We're going to worship our way out of it. And so the only way to really overcome sin is for, for what your heart most worships and longs for and delights in, for that to be changed. And the only thing that can change that is the gospel. And so behavior modifications, even really good ones, and rules and external conformity, those can trim off the, the external fruits of sin, but, they, but only the gospel pulls up sin by the roots and gets it out, deals with it. John Owen talks a lot about this. Religion can change your behavior only the gospel changes the desires that drive your behaviors. And so God, the vine dresser, back to John 15, He is not after external modification. He's not after a quick fix. He doesn't, oh, somebody's coming, let me get some fruit on the vine real quick, and just put it up there and just make it look like we're really fruit. He doesn't care. He wants good, healthy, lasting fruit in your life. He is not in a hurry. He'll do what it takes. He'll do whatever pruning is necessary because He loves you to make that fruit grow. I know the ladies, you've been uh the retreat two weekends ago, um, last weekend really, uh, and the book Transforming Grace was kind of driving that time. I, had, I found a copy and thumbed through it this week and I got reading in one chapter and I just pulled this quote and I was thinking of the ladies and the, the, how well that ties in what you've been talking about how well that ties in with john 15 here He says this my observation of modern christianity Is that most of us tend to base our relationship with god on our performance instead of on his grace If we performed well, whatever well is in our opinion Then we expect god to bless us If we haven't done so well, then our expectations are reduced accordingly In this sense, we believe by works rather than by grace, or we live by works rather than by grace. We are saved by grace, we acknowledge that, but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. We give lip service to the grace of God, but our unspoken motto is, God helps those who help themselves. The realization that my daily relationship with God is based on the infinite merit of Christ instead of my own performance is a very freeing and joyous experience. And it is, isn't it? And I end where I began. That can be yours. You can know fruit, life, vitality, satisfaction. You can know this joy. A life of a faithful, fruitful, abiding in Christ is available to all. Let's pray. Father, I I pray for my own heart. I pray for the uh, my dear brothers and sisters in this congregation, and you—you—you you, you know the, the the holdout that we have, and we—we—we we, we resist the thought of simply just resting in you and abiding in you, and we so quickly run back to this trying to live on a performance treadmill of just keeping up and keeping you on our good side instead of abiding in the vine and letting you produce fruit in us. So, so, Lord, help us. Help us to see real meaningful change in our lives. Today, this week, this month, this year, some of the areas where we're most miserable, God, would we quit trying to simply staple fruit onto our lives, clean up that little part of our lives and make it look better, but we will really draw near to you, Christ, to be changed from the inside, rest, abide in you, abide in your love. And, and be changed as the gospel works in the desires of our heart, and therefore changes our behaviors. Oh, Lord, do that. Uh, this is a constant need of our lives. And I pray, that, I pray that our church would know this fullness of joy that is spoken about here. As we, as we uh, make our boast in Christ, as we're going to sing even now, Oh, Lord, all we have is, is Christ. And may we just find great delight in living there. This Help us to put away those, those residual thoughts of, uh, yes, I have Christ, but I also have, I have my good works, I have my good deeds. No, we have Christ and Him alone. What joy there is in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.